Well, this morning we are continuing through our summer series called Pray. And, and we've been looking through different prayers in the Bible and taking a deeper look at the importance and, and um, meaning of prayer. We've been looking at prayers, of, uh, prayers for healing, prayers of worship, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers to know God more. And throughout all of these, as we've been looking at them, at the core of each of these prayers is a desire to know God more, to walk intimately with Him, and to have a relationship and talk to Him as we would a friend. And this morning, we're coming to everyone's favorite type of prayer, prayers of confession. Um, now, the Bible speaks... That was a joke. Hopefully, you guys aren't... Um, the Bible speaks a lot about different types of confession. Uh, so there's, there's a confession of faith. When, when a person first comes to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior... Uh, through repentance and the turning away of their old life to the new life, they confess faith in Christ. Uh, there's also confessions of sin to others where uh, we seek restoration in relationship by asking for forgiveness. Uh, and, and this is also accountability where we hold each other accountable for our actions and so that we might be healed and that we might enjoy uh, fellowship with one another in the way God has intended it to be. But this morning, we're going to be looking at prayers of confession to God and, and what it means for us to pray these prayers of confession. Uh, because I think one thing that we misunderstand about our walk as Christians is that we only really need to ask for forgiveness once and then it's kind of done. We don't really need to continually ask for forgiveness. Um, and yes, we are forgiven when we first come to faith and we are made right in God's eyes just as Jesus is in his sight and all of our mess ups and mistakes, he doesn't see us through the lens of that anymore, but through the lens of what Jesus has done for us. But at the same time, we continue to make mistakes and live in a broken world. We will struggle with sin as long as we live in this world and we'll fall into it at times. And so we need to continue to confess our sins to Jesus. And when we fail to it, it breaks the relationship. It begins to affect it. It breaks our fellowship not only with him, but with others. And the way we understand God and the way we can hear him speak to us is affected by that. And yet we're told from Scripture that if we confess our sins to Jesus, if we confess them and repent of them, then we can restore that relationship with him again, or he can do that for us. So... As we, as we look to prayers of confession this morning, uh, my hope is that you would, be, you would be emboldened to share with Jesus the darkest parts of your heart, that, that void in your life that you don't even want to acknowledge or look at at times, and, and that you could see that when we bring these parts of ourselves to Jesus, there can be more joy and more life and happiness than we could have ever expected or thought there could be. So... Uh, the main text that we're going to be looking at is from 1 John. Uh, if you have your Bibles or some form of it, uh, turn with me there to 1 John chapter 1 we'll be reading from. Um, so we're going, to read this, we're going to read this text in 1 John, and then we're going to walk through a few other prayers of confession, and then we'll come back to this text in a bit here. So 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be reading from verses 5 to 2 chapter 2. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us will forgive our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. All, all throughout scripture, we... We can read stories of people bringing their sins to God, confessing it. Either, either it's a personal sin that they're bringing to him or it's a, a sin on behalf of a community that they've participated in. So if you, if you turn to the book of Nehemiah, for instance, it's in the Old Testament. It's set during the time of Israel's captivity. So they were just taken into exile uh, because they disobeyed God's word again and again and again. And so as the people are off in exile, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, and he hears a report about the state of Jerusalem, his hometown, and how his people are doing. And he hears that it's terrible. The, the walls are broken down, so bandits are coming in and pillaging the people. Wild animals can uh, just roam wherever they want. And so as Nehemiah is hearing these things, he, he begins praying and mourning and asking for forgiveness and he acknowledges not only his sin, but his sin in participation with the community. And he says, we have acted very wickedly towards you, God. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So not only was he confessing his sin to God, but also the ways he contributed to the mess that Israel was in. And a few hundred years before Nehemiah, there lived a man named King David, um, and if you recall the story, he, he slept with his friend's wife, and then he murdered his friend. And he was actually only brought to confession once his sin was pointed out by the prophet Nathan. And so, uh, you know, we, don't, we don't read it in the context of First and Second Samuel there, but in Psalm 51, David wrote right after he had been confronted with his sin, and he says this, "'Against you, God, only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight.'" And if you, if you read through the rest of the psalm, David asks to be cleansed of his sin and then to be given a new spirit within him that's willing to follow the places that God calls him to. We get, we get other confessions from David. In Psalm 32, uh, he writes his experience of bringing his sin before God and confessing it. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. If you read anywhere else in the Old Testament, from, from Isaiah to Malachi, through all the books of the prophets, God is making his appeal to mankind to repent of their sins, to turn from their ways and to follow him, to see their actions for what they are and to confess them to God. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we as people don't generally like being told that we're wrong or we've done something wrong. We don't really like to look at or acknowledge our own sin. Because when we, when we look at our mistakes or our failures or the ways in which we've hurt people, we don't know what to do with that, right? And so some people just live constantly with a sense of guilt and shame about the things that they've done, uh, knowing that their, their past actions can't be changed on their own. 
Uh, and some people try to do enough good in order to cover up the bad that they've done, and so they try to help make it better, but it's really only sweeping dirt under the carpet instead of cleaning it up. You see, we, we need something greater than our guilt in order to ease our guilt. And the terrifying part of that is we can't do it on our own. That's scary. We need a savior. We need someone to step into our mess, to see it for what it is, and to help us out of it by cleaning us up. And so Jesus came, and he offers us life and peace and meaning in joy, free from hopelessness and purpose he gives us to. If only we'll give our brokenness to him. He exchanges our ashes for beauty as we just sung. We need a savior. And the problem is that it's very easy to stop at this point in our walk with Christ. And what I mean by that is when we first become believers, it's easy to see the big change that we need to make in our lives that Jesus needs to save us from. But as we continue through our walk, it's, it's easy to, when life throws curveballs, turn back to the sin that we were once trapped in. Fall back into hopelessness because we can't find our hope in Jesus and the salvation that once gave many people a lot of lasting joy and hope is now just kind of like a dusty book on the shelf. And every time you walk past it, it gives you a momentary bit of peace. So you see one of the greatest tools of the enemy, Satan, the accuser as he's often called throughout scripture, isn't his power or his great amount of strength over us. In fact, he doesn't have any of that. His ability and great power is actually in his ability to make us think he's bigger than he is, stronger than he is in our own lives. In reality, Satan is like a cornered cat who hinds, uh, arches up its back and standing tall on its legs, trying to make itself look bigger and scarier. That's our enemy. But the mirage our enemy puts on is often frightening and can scare us back from following Jesus into the things that we once fell into in sin. And when he tells us that our sin is too shameful to bring again and again and again back to Jesus, then we stop doing it. Or, or when he gets us to believe that our faults are, are really finally separating us in relationship from God. That's the only power he has, smoke and mirrors. It's the only ability he has over us to frighten us, an illusion to draw our attention away from the truth of who God is and what his word says for us and the promises we have there but it can still feel like the enemy's winning. And one of his best tools is to get us to doubt God's love for us through our sin. We've sinned now again, and God can't love me through this. So we stop confessing. We stop bringing our reality to God, and we pretend that our reality is something else. And we're not really confessing anything at all. And we get stuck in, in sometimes the rut of Christianese, saying the lingo, but not really knowing what it means or having a heart behind it. Like I said earlier, we need to continue to confess our sins in our walk with God. But confession isn't just telling him our sins and, and bringing like a grocery list of our stuff to God and saying, well, here's all the ways I've failed this week, and then after that, go and do the exact same things that week. Confession is also repentance, a turning around from what you used to do. And this can only happen when we agree with Jesus on what he has done with our sin. That as we bring our brokenness to him, he heals us. Our sin is now separated as far from the east as the west is from us. 
Do we believe that promise? So when the enemy reminds us of our past mistakes, we can cling to the promise that our sin is done away with once and for all. Confessing our sins to God in prayer means believing with God what he has done to our sin. And because we trust in the promise that we have strength through Jesus to actually get rid of our sin, to let it go. Easy peasy, right? (laughs) Well, that's the goal. But how do we get there, right? I I think that's the question on everyone's mind. That's perfect. Great, Scott. How do we do that? Uh, We're going to turn back to 1 John. And as we walk through these verses, I hope you can see just the great joy and life that is available to us in these words and a greater depth of intimacy available to us when we bring our brokenness to God. He can exchange those things in us that are so broken for life and fulfillment. So in verses 8 to 10, John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. When we are faced with our own sin, or when we see the void in our lives and the inability of us to fix that, we usually, as humans, have a tendency to work away around our guilt. It can look like justifying our sin, it can look like blaming our sin on someone else, Um, it can be convincing ourselves why the problem isn't as bad as it really is, but We can ignore it, shoving our faults to the back burner of our mind. Substances or momentary happiness, we can use these things to distract our minds from it, but none of these outcomes actually bring true joy and life and lasting hope. They just simply add to the collecting debt of shame and makes it more difficult to bring our sins before God. Because Jesus is the only one who can clean up our mess. He is the only one that can truly save us. And he's in the business of saving. That's the good news. You've sinned for the 734th time. That's okay. As long as you come to Jesus, he's willing to accept you and forgive you. Are you willing to come to him again and again? But again, this is where the enemy tries to get us to think otherwise. Satan wants us to believe that we have a God who's going to enable our sin. He tries to get us to believe that God wants to shut his eyes to our disobedience, that he will always reward and never punish, that he is blind and willing to be taken in and imposed upon. That's the type of God the world wants. It is attractive though, right? We get everything that we want, but that's not God. That's not truth. That's not who he says he is. He's the loving father who disciplines us for our own good. He is truth. He's not one who lets us decide what truth is. And yet we do anyways. Um, It reminds me of the story of my one friend. She's a nurse, and uh, as she was going to work one day, they they had a patient come to their clinic, an elderly man who was complaining of some circulation issues. And so as uh, the doctors did their tests, uh, they found out that he was diabetic. And so uh, she was in the room when the doctor was explaining to the man why Uh, or what he was diagnosed with now, and um, she said it was the funniest thing ever. Uh, As the doctor was explaining, the man, you now have diabetes, the man looked up and just said, well, I don't want it, and he got up and walked out. Um, And as obviously ridiculous as that seems to us, we can do the same in our walk with Jesus. 
We can look into the void of our own souls, the darkest parts of our sin and our past, and say, nope, that's not me. Or, or we can even say, yeah, I might do that sometimes, but it's not that bad. Or we can even worse off say, yeah, but it's not as bad as that guy. Sin will always be a part of our lives as long as we're in this broken world. But it doesn't have to hinder our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't have to. Like I said, sin does not change our salvation, but it does change our fellowship with him. Our relationship is broken down and we have difficulty communicating and understanding the things that God is doing in our lives and speaking to us. So don't stay in the place of thinking, well, life's good enough right now. Why would I need to go looking for my sin? One of the ways Satan also gets us to try and stay where we're at and not grow is by giving us a lack of temptations and trials. In order that that followers of Jesus might think that they're on the right track and believe that they're holy. Our, Our enemy desires to make saints sinners and confident sinners saints. We always have a need to confess. And if you don't think you do, go and read some of the Gospels, the words that Jesus speaks to us. Compare your life with that. And if you don't want to do that, do this dangerous thing. Pray to God and ask that he would reveal to you the parts of your life that he wants to change in you. That's a dangerous prayer, but it's worthwhile. It's good. Remember that we don't see the whole picture of truth. We get glimpses through a mirror or through a window dimly lit. And even within our own understanding of what truth is, it's shaped by the family we grew up in. It's shaped by the culture, the context that we're surrounded by. So how do we know what truth is? We need to trust that what God says is best for us. In Luke 18, there's this story of uh, Jesus shares where there's two people who come to the temple to pray. And the first person is a Pharisee, and he's a religious leader, someone who's supposed to be, he's like a pastor. Um, And there was another one, or another man came up to the temple to pray, who was a tax collector. And they were typically greedy, um, selfish people because they would skim extra money off of people to keep for themselves. And when, when each of the men come up to pray, Jesus says that the Pharisee goes to the very front of the temple and, and boasts loudly about how much he's given to people and how much better he is than everyone else, including that tax collector behind him. And then Jesus describes the actions of the tax collector who doesn't even go up to the front of the temple but stands far back and beats his chest and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, This man, the tax collector, was the man who was justified before God, not the Pharisee. Not because he cleaned up his own life enough to be accepted, but because he was willing to acknowledge his sinfulness in humility and bring his reality to God and let him change him. Do you see your need for a Savior? Are you trying to clean up your life on your own? Coming back to to 1 John chapter 2, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you hear who can be forgiven within that? Anybody. Christians, atheists, 
people who have sinned a million times, if it's your first-time sinner, anyone can be forgiven as long as you come to Jesus. There's hope. Just because you became a Christian and fell back into sin doesn't mean that you found the end of God's forgiveness. You have another opportunity to seek him, to come back to him. God's word speaks the truth and reminds us that his mercies are new every morning, not every once in a while. When we fail as Christians to hold up to the standard that Jesus sets, it's, it's like we're a child who's, who's told not to go play before church on Sunday morning, and so their mom has gotten them dressed up in their Sunday best, and instead of listening to their parent, they run outside and trip and fall in the mud, and, and as they get covered in mud and come back to the house crying, they look up to their parent and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. And the loving parent, as God does, takes us in, cleans us up, removes our stains. One thing I don't want to pass over too quickly, though, is how difficult this is and how terrifying this process can be. Seeing our sin nature on its own is horrible, and accepting grace in light of what we have done is violent. It requires us to see our sin for what it truly is. In reality, is the stinking pile of selfishness that it is, not dressed up in lies or our justifications. Grace is terrifying. Seeing your own sin and need for a savior means that we're in a place of helplessness, in a place of need that we cannot fix within ourselves. Knowing our best attempts won't even take a single grain of sand off the pile that is our sin. We're helpless on our own. But that's also part of the incredible gift that Jesus offers us. The brokenest state of our souls is not just partially cleaned with him. We are made new and spotless. and We are seen as righteous as Jesus is in God's eyes. What an amazing joy that is to experience. But it must first come as we stare into the void of our souls. And no wonder people turn to substances. Others try to justify or hide their sin and why so many people can't believe even that God is real. Because if we don't have a savior, we're crushed. We can't do anything with that. It is truly hopeless for us. We can do nothing except for cope in this world with our brokenness. And so Jesus calls us to come to him, to seek him as our savior, the one who can truly make a difference in our lives. And with Jesus, there is life both now and the fullest and evermore. Back in the fourth century, there lived a man named Augustine who wrote a book called Confessions. I'd encourage you to read it. It's a great book. And in it, he accounts basically his coming to faith, where he had been in his early life and how he came to believe in God. And uh, out of this book comes one of my favorite quotes of his. And he says, Lord, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. And I, I always loved that prayer. It's, I appreciate his brutal honesty, right? He, he, he was praying the deepest parts of his heart. He was confessing both his ability to want God and his temptation for his sins still. And follow, as followers of Jesus, I think it's easy to get stuck in that place with our sin. You know, the place where we see our, our slight need for a Savior is only less than our desire for our sin. And if that's you, pray about it. If you recognize that's within yourself, pray about it. That's the easy solution. I can recall many points in my life where I've prayed to God to even give me the desire to want him more than my sin. 
In moments, we recognize within ourselves even an unwillingness to follow him or be obedient or hold to the truth of his promises. We can ask him for help in that too. That's how good he is. It is hard work to let go of our sin, to give it to Jesus. But unless we do, we can never really fully grasp the hope that we have in him and the life and joy that can be ours. Never really finding peace, but never really being desperate enough to want to change. So, this week, I'm going to again encourage you to spend 10 minutes in prayer every day. As Pastor Dustin reminded us last week, it's, it, it is a discipline. Uh, for some of you, praying 10 minutes every day is uh, easy and it's a breeze. For, other parts, uh, for others of you, it's the most distracted part of your day. And that's okay. It is a discipline, something you get better at the more you practice. It's like weight training or something. You get better the more you do of it. So, as, as you pray this week... Bring your reality before God. Bring your sin to him. Don't lessen them or try to hide parts of it and make your, con- your confessions concrete. Don't make them vague and ethereal because I think it's easy to get stuck in that pit too when we're bringing our reality to God. And you don't need to walk through your entire life and confess every single sin that you've already asked for forgiveness from. Jesus calls us to f- confess and continue to follow him, not to examine every part of our lives in intricate detail so that we can be the ones to find our sin. Jesus needs to reveal our sin to us as well. So if there's something on your mind to confess, bring it to him. And if nothing comes to mind, ask Jesus again. Pray that dangerous prayer and ask him to reveal to you the things that he wants to change in you. It is a dangerous prayer, but it's more worthwhile than anything. So as we close, I want to remind you of a story that Jesus shares in Matthew 25. Uh, he's, he's describing the final judgment where, if you recall the story, he's separating the sheep from the goats. And uh, to, the, to the two groups, Jesus says uh, different things. And so to the first group, he says, uh, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. And he goes on for a little bit. And to the second group, the non-believers, he says, when I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. And when I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And what I always found interesting about this story was that they both respond with the same answer. Lord, when did we see you and not do or do these things? Both groups of people had their focus on something. The second group had their focus on their own needs, on their own selfish desires so that they weren't focused on helping others or giving of themselves in a selfless way. But the other group that followed Jesus didn't have their focus on their good works either. Otherwise, they would have said, well, Jesus, look how much we did for you and how righteous we are now. But they said, when on earth did we do these things for you, Jesus? See, the person who follows Jesus doesn't look to their good deeds and feel good about themselves. They look to Jesus and are confident of what he has done for them, holding on to his promises in the word, trusting in them. We're all sinners. We will all continue to wrestle with sin while we are in this world. As you pray this week, be willing to let Jesus guide you, to bring your sin to him. And as you expose the broken parts of yourself to his light, it is terrifying. But again, it's the most worthwhile thing we can do. Humbly bring your reality to Jesus in the practical ways that you need him this week. Because it's in this place that we can truly taste how good and how loving our Father is. As we move into communion here, we, 
We, we come to the place where our sinfulness meets God's forgiveness. And as Jesus was eating his last meal on earth, he took some bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body given to you. And then he took his cup, passed it around and said, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus' body was broken, it was beaten, it was whipped, it was driven in with nails, not because he sinned, but because we did. You see, the, the blood that ran down the cross and pooled at its base wasn't because he had done wrong, but because we have. Because he loves us enough to die such a violent death. And so as we partake in communion today, we, we celebrate solemnly we celebrate because our sin has been dealt with once and for all, that we have a Savior whose strength no enemy can overcome. And we can rest assured in that promise. But it's solemn because we also recognize that the things we do put him on that cross. So as, as we uh, enter into a time of communion, there are stations set up throughout the uh, sanctuary here. Uh, there's a gluten-free option at the front as well. Uh, but I just encourage you, um, we're kind of transitioning out of serving, we're getting a little bit more familiar with the crosses, but I'd encourage every one of you, if you can make it, to come up to the cross. Um, if you're unable to get up or physically able to move, uh, just raise your hand and our elder Ed will be passing some around there for you. But as you, as you take the bread and juice, um, I'd encourage you, as you eat the elements, pray that God would give you the ability to know both how Jesus has saved you and the ways that he needs to continue to save you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your love that is in such great amounts that we can sometimes hardly even understand it. God, I pray that you would help us as we look into the darkest parts of our lives and hopefully give them to you this week. We ask for your help. God, we don't want to run to the places that are good for us all the time. We often want to run the other direction. So God, we pray for a desire to give you those dark parts of our hearts, the places of our lives that we need you and still continue to turn a blind eye to help us to give those to you, Father. So as we celebrate and partake in communion this day, we pray that you would help us to tangibly and better understand the sacrifice you've made for us. But Father, we thank you that you made that sacrifice. We thank you that through you, we are made sinless welcomed as your children.